is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Welcome to episode 25 of Victorian Scribblers, a very special Christmas episode, episode 25 on the 25th. And today we are going to read a short story from Fanny Jackson Coppin. Um, Courtney's going to read that to you and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Fanny Jackson Coppin's life. Um, yeah, I just wanted to provide a little note up top, kind of similar to our Hopkins episode. I am going to end up using language that we wouldn't use um, out of historical context because it refers to the names of places, um, particularly schools. So quite possible I have changed that language, but obviously when it's the name of something, I can't just go and change something's names. Because she's a really amazing person. One of the articles that I read described her as, quote, one of the most influential black educators and community leaders of the late 19th century, end quote. And I'll tell you about why that was. So Fanny Jackson Coppin was born just Fanny Jackson originally, into slavery in Washington, D.C. on the 8th of January, 1837. Her grandfather had bought his own freedom and then later the freedom of four of his six children. Wow. And according to Fanny's memoir, um, quote, on account of my birth, my grandfather refused to buy my mother, end quote. She doesn't say what about her birth made him not buy her mother. Um, luckily, her aunt, Sarah Orr Clark, saved $125 in order to buy her freedom when she was a child. Yeah, it seems like her grandparents um, looked after her while her mother was working. And they seem, frankly, borderline abusive. Like, It's difficult because they're probably extremely busy and they're struggling to look after a baby. But there are some instances that Fanny Jackson Coppin describes in her autobiography that are at best pretty neglectful. So early on, she mentions kind of offhandedly that she's been badly burnt twice in her childhood. And the first occasion was at her christening. She was, she says, tied in a chair and placed near the stove. That's all she says. She doesn't say whether this was part, like whether it was an accident, whether why she was tied in a chair, why the chair was near a stove. Um, Not sure. On the second, her grandma told her mum, so her grandma's been looking after her while her mum's at work, her mum arrives back in the evening and the grandma tells her that Fanny was, quote, the crossest baby I ever saw. Eventually, her mum gets her home and she's undressing her, I assume, for the night. And she finds a coal from grandma's pipe in Coppins's clothing. Mm. Um, I'm assuming that's like kind of thoughtlessness, where it's, but I, I don't know. Wow. Like, a coal from her pipe just fell down into the baby's clothing and burned her pretty badly that's terrifying it kind of like sounds like one of those excuses like oh i fell down the stairs yeah yeah that's why i was reading this and i was like i don't want to call these people who like have only just freed themselves from slavery like they have a lot going on i don't want to 
you know, villainize them. But also, this doesn't sound great. Yeah. Um, she also writes about being quite a sickly child and she often had fevers. She, I hadn't actually included this in my notes, but she's saying like a little later on, she is working as a servant and um, black people weren't allowed to swim in the ocean during like regular swimming hours, which are just the safe swimming hours. So you either swim when it's not safe or you don't swim. And she gets caught swimming because apparently it really helps her illnesses. Mm. And luckily the fact that she is the um, working for, I think it's Mrs. Calvert, like she gets away with it because of that. But mm. it's so gross that she's like, this This is helping her illness and she's not allowed to do it until she can align herself with this white lady. But Ugh, yeah. Just a fun little side note. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> After her aunt Sarah bought Coppins' freedom, she moved her to stay with another aunt in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And here she was able to attend school when she wasn't working. So she's still, she's not enslaved anymore, but she's still having to work because the family are only recently free and don't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And she says that because she needed to work and there was no such thing as a night school at the time, she had to miss school on wash day, ironing day and cleaning day and her education was interrupted. So She's getting some education. You certainly get the sense from when I was reading the articles I read about her and her autobiography that most of it's self-guided. So she does go to school, but it's disrupted. Hmm. Eventually, she moved to Newport, Rhode Island, where a different aunt, this time Elizabeth Orr, says an aunt by marriage, so I don't know whether she's related to. But Sarah is Sarah Orr Clark, I think. So presumably some kind of married relation of Sarah. So Elizabeth Orr offered her a home and a better chance at school. Coppins then decides that at the big age of 14, she should take care of herself rather than be a burden on her aunt, hmm. which is kind of a running theme. She's very like self-effacing. So she finds herself a place to live with some very fancy sounding people, the Calverts, who I mentioned earlier. So the husband, I guess, was actually a writer and also the great-grandson of Lord Baltimore of colonising Maryland fame. And the wife is descended from Mary, Queen of Scots. Fanny kind of mentions that offhandedly in her autobiography, and it's like, cool. <laughs> like, how would you not mention that if you stayed with somebody who had that claim? It would be like for the rest of your life. You're just like, by the way. <laughs> if, I, if I ever met someone who was like, yes, I'm descended from Mary, Queen of Scots, and it's like provable, I will tell everyone about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at the Calvert's house, she had an hour's private tuition every other weekday afternoon before attending the local, and this is the language warning, um, she attends the local public coloured school for a few months. I kind of put, I don't know how to refer to that because we don't use that language anymore, but we need to note that it's a segregated school and it's going to be a yeah. lot of talk about schools at this point, and obviously it is almost 100 years before Brown versus Board of Education, like schools mm-hmm. are segregated. Um. Oh, yeah, while in Newport, she also learned piano and guitar. Wow. And I, I put in my notes, like, side note, intellectually, like, I know that acoustic guitars have been around for centuries, but they're not, like, the first instrument you think of for the 19th century. Yeah. And then I was like, does that mean there's a version, of, like, 19th century version of the guy at a party who starts playing Wonderwall? And what is the song <laughs> that they play? I'm pretty sure that guy is a banjo guy. And, uh... Yeah, I'm basing this just off of all the John Wayne movies that I watched growing up. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that teaching um, or her education all prepared her for the Rhode Island State Normal School. And normal school is a phrase that comes up a few times. It basically just means teacher training college. Mm-hmm. Um, and in her autobiography, she says that first opened her eyes to the idea of teaching. When she finished the course, she felt that she still had more to learn. With the help of her aunt, she enrolled at Oberlin College in 1860, noting that it offered the same course of study as at Harvard, but was, at the time, the only college in the US where black students were admitted. And it's also, I think, the first college to admit women. Yeah. We mentioned this in our um, episode about uh, Martin R. Delaney. Yeah. um, Because it was being formed when he was a college college age person. (laughs) I knew that Oberlin had come up before, and I was like... Yeah. So while she was at Oberlin, she took the gentleman's course, which involved studying Latin, Greek, and maths, so just those, you know, kind of pre-STEM classics. Mm-hmm. Um, and apparently it wasn't, like, explicitly forbidden for women to take this course, but it was strongly discouraged. In her junior year, so I wanted to put a note for non-North American um, listeners that that is the third mm-hmm. year of university or high school. So in her junior year, the faculty sent for her and she's understandably a bit nervous about what they might want. Um, But it was kind of good news. And I'm kind of cautious about that, which will be obvious, but they wanted her to teach pupils in the preparatory class. She was the first black student teacher at Oberlin. I think I read that she was the first black woman to do this. Well, if she was the first black person to do this, of course she would be the first black Mm -hmm. woman. And the reason I was a little bit cautious about saying that that's a good thing is because the faculty warned her that pupils might not pay attention to her. Most of them were white and she enrolled at Oberlin, as I said, in 1860. So this is the height of the Civil War. Mm. And apparently she says in her autobiography that would make some white people resent people of colour who they thought would cause the war because it's the people of colour and not the people who think they can own people that cause the Civil War. Victim blaming is not a new thing. No, but she was really successful and soon she had two classes to teach. So she says that it starts off with one class and then eventually there's like 80 pupils in that class. So they decide that has to become two 40 people classes, which is still a really big class size. Wow. And she's teaching those two classes as well as private musical tutoring. She had like 16 musical um, duties and her own schoolwork because she's still in college. So she's a year away from graduating and Oberlin receives a letter from a school in Philadelphia saying they needed a woman of colour who could teach Greek, Latin and maths. Obviously, you've talked before about how that's the gentleman's course and women are dissuaded from doing that, but they reply they have exactly the (laughs) woman in Fanny and they just have to wait a year for her, which they gladly do. Yeah, kind of an aside here. I was really struck when I was reading about her and her kind of mission how similar it was in some ways to Francis Wright's that we discussed in the episode on Francis Milton Trollope. Mm. The big difference is that Francis Wright did not, as we mentioned, follow through with her aims, and Jackson Coppin really did. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of a really important point to linger on for a second. It's so much more personal for her that she has to follow through with it. Yeah. And she also brings a very nuanced understanding of what's needed, mm-hmm. whereas... Right brings a, a white perspective of what's needed and those things don't necessarily match up. Yeah, she knows what's needed because it's what she needed when she was at school. Yeah. 
I think that's interesting because, right, I've actually just been reading um, Bell Hooks' Teaching to Transgress, and she talks about, so she is in school when Brown versus Board of Education goes into place, and she talks about being integrated into white schools and suddenly having like this sharp drop in the quality of her education because the way Mm -hmm. teachers thought about her as a pupil was suddenly a very othered, um, kind of like pitying, looking down, or even resentful um, experience instead of the teachers in the segregated schools who knew exactly what she would need in her life um, and also like understood that their students were intellectually capable. And just hearing that, um, you know, because like I think we learn about Brown versus Board of Education as an um, unqualified good thing, like mm-hmm. there are no caveats, but there were, um, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing like for segregation. Obviously it is like integrated schools needed to happen, but at the same time, it's like you put these black students with white teachers who, um, yeah. who don't want to think about their student, like who already have pedagogies formed about teaching white students. So it's a white-centered focus. And of course, that's going to be a problem. And I think, you know, maybe that has been addressed subsequently. I did not go to public school, so that's why I'm speaking so hypothetically. I have no idea what schools are like. Um, but but yeah, just to hear that perspective of somebody who was at school at the time and just pairing that with the right um, cop in. Yeah, and that's that is kind of the centerpiece of Coppin, like just to jump ahead a bit, is like the centerpiece of her thinking is her ultimate kind of belief is in black solidarity and mm. helping one another and that together there's I can't remember the exact phrase and I don't have it in my notes, but it's like one person can push like if you're I think it's like if you're rolling a tree through a forest, like if two people try to do it, they can't do it. Mm-hmm. And if four people try to do it, but they're all trying to do it at different times, they can't do it. But if 20 people all come together at the same time, they can do it all together. Mm. But like what you were saying about um, Bell Hooks really chimes with what she says in her autobiography. She says she had to excel in her studies because she had, quote, the honour of the whole African race upon my shoulders. And that if she failed, it would be blamed on her race. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have the privilege of just failing and it just being oh Fanny's maybe not as good at maths and that's fine because people excel in different areas it's Fanny's not good at maths because she's black yeah which is still like this is what's so depressing about this stuff is that that's still a thing it is it's still a thing yep and yeah one of the articles I was reading was kind of it wasn't critical at all but it was saying she's not saying that if she doesn't excel it will be Fanny couldn't do maths because she's a woman. It's because she's black. Mm. Like gender doesn't play nearly as big a role in this as race. Um, and that kind of comes up in a, like, I don't know, in my white woman framing, I would have thought this was a gender thing, but she was especially keen to prove her ability in maths. That's why I've been using it as an example. Because, quote, I, would have, I had always heard that my race was good in the languages, but stumbled when they came to mathematics. Huh. And that's something that I've always heard about women as well. Yeah. But to her, she's not saying she doesn't link it to gender because that's not nearly as much of an influence on her experience as race. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know where I was going with that, but it's kind of like, yeah, being aware of those intersectionalities and that even though you might understand from one perspective as a woman or she's quite sickly through her life, so as a non-able-bodied person, you might try, like understand with that, but you can't grasp the full intersectional experience. Um, yeah, there's this really weird episode that I don't know how to feel about. Her Greek professor, she does really well in Greek one day and her Greek professor decides to visit her maths class to see if she does as well in maths as she does in Greek and copy and pass that test with flying colours. But I was kind of like, I'm not sure where that Greek professor was coming from. Like, I want to be... She seems to have a really positive experience at Oberlin and she kind of says that as much as possible it is really fair on the basis of race. Mm-hmm. And she tells a story about getting to Philadelphia and it being a storm out and she wants to get into the streetcar. But she has to wait in the storm for a streetcar with a cart for people of colour. Mm. And she's like, this was such a shock because at Oberlin this wasn't a thing. Hmm. Yeah, she seems to have a really positive experience and I don't want to put this Greek professor down, like down to him doubting her. And the possibly naive educator in me wants to believe he was really impressed with her and yeah. wants to see how well she was, she did in other subjects. But maybe it's like a Phyllis Wheatley kind of situation. Like Phyllis Wheatley always felt, always professed to feel very positive about her treatment, but it was the whole thing of like, she has to prove that she's actually the one doing it and not um, just taking credit for someone else or something. Yeah. And it's also the thing of like, is he saying, oh, I'm really impressed with her just because she's a really good student or because it's like, oh, this black woman is really good at Greek and maths. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How benign is it? Yeah. So during her senior year at Oberlin, she's still in college at this point, um, copying started an evening class for formerly enslaved people moving to Ohio from the South, uh, where she taught them to read and write. And just wanted to quote again from her autobiography. She says, I felt that for such people to have been kept in the darkness of ignorance was an unpardonable sin. A lot of what she does, and we'll talk later about her husband, who was um, a pastor, but a lot of what she does does come from a religious perspective of being like, it is sin to keep people in ignorance. Mm. It is the right Christian thing to lift up your fellow like humans. Mm-hmm. So she graduated in 1865 and went to work at the Friends School in Philadelphia. And Friends referring to Quaker Quakers. Friends. Yeah. Shouldn't be a surprise with Philadelphia. But. <laughs> so that school was the Institute for Coloured Youth and had been founded in 1837. And its kind of mission statement when it was founded I'm changing language here, as you might be able to tell, but the mission statement query was to make a test whether or not black people were capable of acquiring any considerable degree of education, for it was one of the strongest arguments in the defence of slavery that black people were an inferior creation. And that's Mm. how um, Coppin describes it in her autobiography. The school was well known throughout the US and their mission was clearly successful. Coppin said she was especially glad to know that the students were doing their work so well as to justify Quakers in their fair-minded opinion of them. So, like, yeah, that has been proven really well. That, Of course, they're able to learn if you give them the resources and opportunities. So Coppin was the principal of the girls' department at the school. So in 1869, the principal of the institute left, and Coppin was promoted. Um, so now she's the principal of the whole school, not just the girls' department. So she becomes the first black woman to lead an institution of higher learning in the United States. And she created a normal school, again, teachers training at the Institute and also 
abolished tuition so no pupil was kept away from education because they were poor so when she becomes yeah when she becomes principal she's like everyone is going to have access to this um so she brings in the normal school she abolishes tuition she also brought in student teachers so that same experience that she'd had at oberlin that was really positive students at the institute for college youth can now teach younger pupils or pupils that aren't as far on in their course of education and she encouraged black people who'd newly arrived from the south to enroll and that disrupts this kind of social structure that they that was existing in philadelphia at the time where black philadelphians were really heavily favored over newcomers to the city and there was this kind of yeah social structure where people who had recently been freed moving north were lower on the social ladder it wasn't a very <laughs> wordy oh, word. it was a very non-eloquent way of saying that and then so she tries to have the Quaker managers of the school pay for dormitories for these southern students who don't actually have homes in Philadelphia yet. And they refuse to do that. So what she does instead is rents the house next door to her own and pays the rent out of her own pocket for them. So it's kind of like I was struck by this. It's solidarity on the basis of like race and class as well. And also she comes up against obstacles with hmm. white people working towards like class issues because she comes up against, we're going to talk about her industrial education point of view, comes up against some issues with white trade unions. So again, it's kind of the, just because you're aligned on one axis doesn't mean sadly that you'll have solidarity, especially when race comes into it. So Coppin turned her attention to getting black children education opportunities in industry, because these opportunities were not often available outside of the House of Refuge or prison system. Instead, she resolved that it was, quote, necessary for us to have our own, mm. end quote, industrial workplaces. So there's this quote from, I think it's Frederick Douglass saying, <laughs> basically, it's much easier for black students to get a classical education and get into a lawyer's office than to get into a, I think it's a boot factory. And that this industrial and vocational education just isn't there. So she's saying if, and this is where she comes up against white trade unions as well, right? She's like, if they're not giving us the opportunities, we have to create them for ourselves. The school introduced an industrial department in 1889, and the, this department taught, so for boys, there was bricklaying, plastering, carpentry, shoemaking, printing, and tailoring. For girls, there was dressmaking and millinery. And then for boys and girls, there was typewriting, stenography, and classes in cooking. And she sets about trying to get work for the pupils when they graduated by setting up an industrial exchange. So this is an exhibition of the children's work and she asks them to bring in kind of saleable examples of their work and then people can look around and hopefully give them some money and give them employment. Um, she lectured throughout the Northeast and wrote under the pseudonym Catherine Casey, particularly in the Christian Recorder. And in, 18, in 1879, she led a campaign to save the Christian Recorder from bankruptcy. And in her writing about that, she's really stressing that black solidarity was more important than denominational disagreements among Christians. So the recorder was a black newspaper and she stresses that it employs black printers. So both on an ideological and a practical side, like it's bringing mm. out ideology that is for primarily for black people. And also it's giving black people employment. In 1881, I'm going to start calling her Fanny for a second now because it's just easier. Um, mm. In 1881, Fanny married Reverend Levi Jenkins Coppin. He was transferred to Baltimore a year later, so a year after their marriage. And rather than going with him, Fanny stayed in Philadelphia so that she could teach. Levi was eventually able to return to Philadelphia in 1885 as pastor at the Mother Bethel Church. 
1888, with the help of women from the church, Fanny opened a home for destitute women who had been refused by other charities. Then in 1894, she opened the Women's Exchange and Girls' Home on 12th Street, and that provided housing and education for young women, both students and working women. So I was a bit confused whether this was the same as the one mentioned in 1888, but it must be a different one, which is not surprising because she was, by all accounts, a very busy woman who was always doing stuff to help others. And that um, girls' home on 12th Street was praised actually by W.B. Du Bois, who said it was one of the cheap black institutions of the city. It always feels a bit wrong to be like, and then this man praised her, but like it genuinely is important. And it's good that she's getting recognition. In June 1802, Coppin retired from the Institute. She then served on the board of managers for the home for the aged and infirm coloured people in Philadelphia from 1881 to 1913 and was committed to bringing education to the community as well as academic spaces. So those kind of refuges and homes that she's involved in are always giving educational opportunities to people, even if they're not school age or they're working full time, she tries to find ways to teach people and give them at least vocational training and things like, um, I was going to say seamstressy, what's it called? Sewing. In 1902, Fanny and Levi travelled to South Africa on a missionary trip Again, he was a pastor, and there they founded a missionary school, the Bethel Institute. Coppin returned to Philadelphia in 1907, where she worked on her autobiography, and she returned there because she was in poor health, and eventually died there in 1913. I wanted to mention a few of the many things that are named after her. So in 1889, the Fanny Jackson Coppin Club was founded in Oakland, California, and that was named in her honour. Um, there's a whole article about it on Black Past and it's kind of seen as the kind of foremost black women's club in California. Wow. And in 1926, a teacher training school in Baltimore was named after her and that is now the Coppin State University. Yeah, <laughs> that's so cool. Like this woman's influence is incredible and well-deserved. I kind of wanted to end with a quote from Coppin herself and she's speaking about a fair that she'd organised as part of the campaign to save the Christian recorder and really sums up kind of bits of what we've been talking about. So, quote, we do not ask our white friends to come out and make this fair a success. If the word grand was not so abominably ill-used, I would say that we have already made it a grand success. Come and help us make it a greater one. Mm. Like, that's so powerful. It's like, I shouldn't... Yeah, it's we don't need your help, but if you want to be an ally, like we've already started the work, you don't need to do the work from scratch. Just support. Yeah. Which obviously I can't speak on a race basis, but as someone with like in other marginalized groups is absolutely spot on. So that's yeah, that's her life. I'd intended to kind of have a paragraph or two, but then I I've already cut things out of that and I didn't know Yeah, I'd cut as much as I could out. And I think it's definitely warranted and also just, yeah, just, I didn't do a lot of digging, but I could tell just by like a very quick Google search that there was going to be a lot there, you know? Yeah, I also, um, amazing. I'll put them in the show notes, but there were articles that I, I linked all the articles that I did read, but there were others that kind of cropped up and weren't entirely relevant, but still like seemed really interesting reads. So I'll keep them in there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll have a little bit of a musical interlude 
take some time to grab your steamy hot beverage of choice, maybe tea, maybe hot cocoa. Let's settle in for Christmas Eve story. facts before I start reading. Christmas Eve Story was published in December of 1880 in the Christian Recorder, which Eleanor just mentioned, um, which was the main sort of um, publication of the African-American Methodist Episcopal Church um, and one of the earliest Black publications that featured literary efforts. So there were lots of Black newspapers, but I think this one focused really kind of solely on the more literary side of publishing Um, And it had a really wide readership, national readership. So this story is sort of written as a fairy story. um, And it illustrates really, I think, Coppin's passions. So she, you know, she spent her life, as we just heard, working to really provide assistance for um, Black children and particularly ones from poor or underprivileged backgrounds. So this story really kind of illustrates her life's work in a way. Okay, without further ado, Christmas Eve story. Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Maggie Devins, and she had a brother named Johnny, just one year older than she. Here they both are. Now, if they could, they would get up and make you a bow. But, dear me, we all get so fastened down in pictures that we have to keep as quiet as mice, or we'd tear the paper all to pieces. I'm going to tell you something about this little boy and girl, and perhaps some little reader will remember it. You see how very clean and neat both of them look. Well, if you had seen them when Grandma Devins first found them, you would never have thought that they could be made to look as nice as this. Now hear their story. Last Christmas Eve, while Grandma Devins was sitting by her bright fire, there was a loud knock at the door, and upon opening it, she found a policeman who had in his arms two children who were nearly dead. I come, Mum, he said, to ask you if you will let these poor little young ones stay here tonight in your kitchen. Their mother has just died from the fever. She lived in an old hovel around an acorn alley, and I'm afraid to leave the young ones there tonight, for they're half-starved and half-frozen to death now. God pity the poor, mum, God pity the poor, for it's hard upon them, such weather as this. Meanwhile, Grandma Devins had pulled her big sofa up to the fire and was standing looking down upon the dirty and pinched little faces before her. She didn't say anything, but she just kept looking at the children and wiping her eyes and blowing her nose. All at once, she turned around as if she had been shot. She flew to the pantry and brought out some milk, which she just put on the fire to boil, and very soon she had two steaming cups of hot milk with nice biscuit broken into it, and with this she fed the poor little creatures until a little color came into their faces, and she knew that she had given them enough for that time. The policeman said he would call for the children in the morning and take them to the almshouse. 
The fact is, the policeman was a kind-hearted man, and he secretly hoped that he could get someone to take the children and be kind to them. As soon as Maggie and Johnny had their nice warm milk, they began to talk. Johnny asked Grandma Devins if she had anybody to give her Christmas presents, and Grandma said no. But Maggie spoke up and said her mama told her before she died that God always gave Christmas presents to those who had no one to give them any. And throwing her arms around Grandma's neck, she said, God will not forget you, dear lady, for you've been so good to us. Like a flash of light, it passed through Grandma Devon's mind that God had sent her these children as her Christmas gift. So she said at once, Children, I made a mistake. I have had a Christmas present. There, said Maggie, I knew you would get one. I knew it. When the policeman came in the morning, his heart was overjoyed to see the young ones, as he called them, nicely washed and sitting by the fire bundled up in some of Grandma Devon's dresses. She had burnt every stitch of their dirty rags which they had on the night before. So that accounted for their being muffled up so. You can go right away, policeman. These children are my Christmas gift, and please God I'll be mother and father both to the poor little orphans. A year has passed since then, and she says that Johnny and Maggie are the best Christmas gifts that any old woman ever had. She has taught Maggie to darn and sew neatly, and one of these days she will be able to earn money as a seamstress. Have you noticed her little needle case hanging against the wall? Do you see the basket of apples on one side? Johnny was pairing them when Maggie asked him to show her about her arithmetic, for Johnny goes to school, but Maggie stays at home and helps Grandma. Now, as soon as Grandma comes back, she is going to make them some mince pies for Christmas. Johnny will finish pairing the apples while Maggie is stoning the raisins. Oh, what a happy time they will have tomorrow. For I will whisper in your ear, little reader, that Grandma Devins is going to bring home something else with her other than raisins. The same kind-hearted policeman who I told you about in the beginning has made Johnny a beautiful sled and painted the name Hero on it. Grandma has bought for Maggie the nicest little hood and cloak that you ever saw. Is that not nice? I guess if they knew what they're going to get, they wouldn't sit so quietly as we see them. They'd jump up and dance about the floor, even if they tore the paper all to pieces. Oh, let every little girl and boy thank our Heavenly Father for the blessed gift of his dear son on the first Christmas day, 1880 years ago. The end. I was going to say the policeman is the most unbelievable part of this fairy story, but um, also the precise date of <laughs> the first Christmas is kind of hilarious. Um, not to make light of her work at all. <laughs> I was going to say policeman before you um, yeah, pointed that out. I was having the exact same thoughts. It's like, wow. And also I was kind of like, oh, this is... I'm sure a lot of people carved names into sleds. But I was like, wow, Orson Wells really stole this name in a sled. Hmm. Idea for Citizen Kane. I've still never seen Citizen Kane. <laughs> I can't remember much about it. There's a rich newspaper man and then a sled with the word rosebud carved in it at the end. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this very short story. Um, like, I think it's interesting that um, Maggie stays home and doesn't go to school. Yeah, I was really struck by yeah. that. Yeah. But then it is, 
Because I didn't get the sense that she thought it was a bad or like she didn't feel hard done by that when she went to school she had to take like ironing day off and she couldn't go to school on those days. Huh. She kind of just describes it as matter of fact. Yeah. And maybe it's just part of being in a very um like a, a very caring family that a girl doesn't quote have to go out to school necessarily. I don't know. But she is learning math, so Yeah. So she's not like not learning. Because I think that's like, especially what I was saying about kind of the community education aspect is, like, I think an important part of Coppin's idea is you don't have to go to school to learn, and that she does want to make school available for those who would like to go there and, like, with the abolishing tuition and, mm-hmm. um, like, spending her own money on housing for pupils. Clearly, that's a priority of hers. Mm-hmm. But she's also aware of the practicalities that some people can't go to school during work days or have to care for family members and wants to provide education for those people as well. Yeah. And Maggie is getting sort of a vocational education in that she's being prepared to have a career as a seamstress, which is actually, if we think back to the Pauline Hopkins, was it Pauline Hopkins? No, maybe it was Martin Ardellini again. Somebody who was, mother was making money as a seamstress. I think it was Martin Ardellini. Melody. Oh, I'm having the exact same thought as you. It was someone. Yeah, and like making a pretty good living. I think it was Delaney. Yeah, I think it was Delaney. But yeah, I was kind of struck by like Sarah not going out to school as well. But I think that speaks to the fact that it's kind of, I don't know, the sense I get from reading about her life is that there isn't one right solution for everyone. Mm -hmm. And the onus should be on providing the right solution for individuals. Yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, a published work doesn't only reflect the author's sensibilities, it also reflects the periodical sensibilities, especially in the 19th century, mm-hmm. where editing had often a much heavier kind of political hand. Um, yeah. So we can't really necessarily attribute that decision solely to Coppin, but. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but it is a very, very much a Christian story. Yeah, I mean, it's in the Christian Recorder, so... <laughs> it's in the Christian Recorder, written by a woman whose husband was a pastor. It shouldn't be. Yeah. It's a fairy story with a moral. But, in, yeah, the other things I've read by her have been um, excerpts of her non-fiction, I guess, where the... Mm. And obviously it's aimed at a different audience, so the Christian aspect is kind of subtly underpinning what she's saying rather than being quite as on the surface as it is in this but as you say it's a story it's for children or families to read together and it is in the christian recorder yeah and children's stories like people who wrote for children often um i'm thinking like of charlotte mary young in um the uk who wrote for um church periodicals pretty much almost exclusively Uh, you know it's it's a very common thing especially for women writers to be writing in uh, for children in religious publications this is the year before she marries as well so maybe that's interesting yeah i mean she um what i read was that she was a member of the baptist church and then you know her husband is a methodist so yeah, yeah she ends up um kind of joining the methodist church 
yeah, which I think answers well to what I was saying about when she is leading this campaign to save the recorder, is saying it doesn't matter what denomination you are, we're all Christians. Yeah. It really adds into that. I don't know, it's a really nice image of the, the grandma. Yeah. She'll be mother and father both to them. <laughs> yeah, so that's our Christmas episode. We hope you all have happy holidays for whatever you celebrate. Um, and we'll be back next month with a new episode. Yes. Wrapping up as always. I always like <laughs> have intense up speak at the end of episodes just because I don't. Yeah, because it's like, what am I saying now? Mm-hmm. I wish it was easy to have a nice, neat sign off. But I... I know. Yeah. I realize also you said that and then I just said, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah, I hope everyone gets a bit of time over the holiday break to reset a little bit.